Okay, how's it going everybody? I hope all is well. And again, thanks for listening. Okay, well, you know, before I get started, I've mentioned this uh, a few times before, but uh, if you're interested in the content here at The Wisdom Of, then uh, check out my YouTube channel called Philosophy With A View. It's, uh, it's got a lot of similar material. Anyway, so uh, let's get on with it. Okay, so in this episode, I want to try to say something about, well, about rebellion. Now, there are lots of reasons to rebel, right? There are many forms of rebellion. I mean, you could, uh, like Camus does, you could rebel against death or the, or the absurdity of life. Or like uh, Dostoevsky's Ivan Karamazov, you could rebel against, against God or religion. Or you could even, like uh, Dostoevsky's underground man, try to rebel against the laws of necessity. But what I want to talk about here is mostly rebellion against the crowd. You know, that larger faceless collective that, in one way or another, seeks to impose its will on us, or to, to pressure us to do what is supposed to be right or normal. In other words, this is rebellion that tries to reject the norms of society. This is, this is partly rebellion against what uh, John Stuart Mill called the threat of the tyranny of the majority. Okay, so why is this a cause for rebellion exactly? Well, there's lots of reasons. I mean, here's one. Maybe the crowd, the masses, maybe they do things that, although pervasive and so seemingly acceptable, are actually morally wrong or or questionable. I mean, for example, think about the, uh, the oppression of women. So, in her time, the French philosopher Simone de Beauvoir certainly rebelled against mass society by by criticizing the patriarchy and the way that women were encouraged to behave and to think of themselves. Or, um, what about the treatment of animals? I mean, I would say that today, the philosopher Peter Singer is another example of, of a rebel. In a society where uh, barbecues and burgers dominate, he has spent his entire life trying to bring to light just how, how morally repugnant the factory farm and big meat industry really is. Okay, so what's another cause for rebellion here? Well, here are a couple of reasons to rebel that are, are closely related. So, first of all, how about the fact that the the pressure of the crowd, social conformity, can be debilitating from a, well, from a, a personal psychological point of view. And um, second of all, that the, well, let's call it the, the leveling force of the crowd often inhibits individual excellence and achievement. So let's take a personal debilitation first. And you know, here, actually, someone like Nietzsche is apt. So, what he thinks is that what most of us, you know, the masses, have inherited from from Christianity is to be sort of overly humble and timid. And so, here, Nietzsche rebels. 
what he does is he encourages us as individuals to to cast off our Judeo-Christian shackles and to go on to think more highly of ourselves, to go on to develop greater self-esteem. And um, as for the second point about the crowd inhibiting individual excellence, well, here too Nietzsche has lots to say, but so do the likes of uh, Kierkegaard and Ortega y Gasset. I mean, in their own way, both of these thinkers believe that the influence of the crowd can, can hold us back. In other words, when everyone's treated the same, that can prevent someone who's got, who's got more potential than others from becoming great. Now, I know that this can sound sort of elitist, and in the case of uh, some of these thinkers, it probably is. But the thing to notice is that it doesn't have to be. The basic point still holds. And that's that mass society in its uh, leveling and conforming force in one way or another rubs out our uniqueness as individuals. It's just, um, it's just hard to carve out a space where we can truly be ourselves. Actually, you know, this idea of a mass society grinding us down to the same common shape and reducing us to, to something like the, the common denominator makes me think a bit of what the, uh, the philosopher and social critic Herbert Marcuse says about these things. You see, he wrote a book called uh, One Dimensional Man, and uh, that title is revealing. So, for him... To live in our, in our current capitalistic society is to live in a, in a one-dimensional society, which has whittled away our, our private space, that supposed infrangible realm of the sacred, that, uh, that little space we had inside of us of negation and freedom and contemplation. You know, where our genuine self lies. Nope, that's gone, he says. Private life as such doesn't exist anymore. Mass society has invaded and taken over our entire being, including this, um, this inner dimension. It's swallowed it up. And it's done this by, by having gotten deep inside of us where it has shaped our desires and values and manipulated our needs, even our instincts. And so, what's the consequence of this? Well, it's that we have become one-dimensional beings. That's to say, it's that we identify ourselves with, uh, with what's around us, with what's external to us, our society and its products. We project and, and find ourselves in things. We recognize ourselves in our commodities. We find our soul in our cars and in our dining sets. Ultimately, as one-dimensional beings, we no longer know what our real or, or vital needs and desires are. In other words, as one-dimensional beings, we don't know our true needs precisely because our needs are not our own, since they're superimposed on us by our capitalistic and consumerist society and further fortified by the condition of our existence. We just... We just desire and consume what's in accordance with the, the advertisements. And they're all the same. 
They're the same sort of desires. They're desires for iPhones and McDonald's and Nike and flat screen TVs and barbecues and so on. So, according to Marcuse, there's a real sense in which we're being indoctrinated and manipulated. We're being kept incapable of being autonomous. But then, here's the question. How do we liberate ourselves from this? How do we get back our freedom and our autonomy? How do we rebel? Well, Marcuse thinks that that is really, really tough. And that's because our capitalistic and consumerist society has become so ubiquitous that it's, well, it's become a society without opposition. A society that's almost completely closed off any possibility of radical, social, and individual change. Or as uh, Marcuse says, a society that militates against qualitative change. I mean, there's such a conformity to prevailing thought that there's, there's almost no critical dimension left. And if you don't go along with the status quo, you're stigmatized and ultimately still impotent in the face of the overwhelming tyranny of the majority. And um, not only this, but there's a bigger hurdle. And it's this. It's that because we're constantly being fed and, and satiated, we're actually content with our lot. In other words, the real problem is how it is we're going to find it in us to liberate ourselves from what is rewarding and comfortable and pleasurable, without which it's become impossible for us to imagine happiness. When are we going to see that the more the, more the smooth functioning of our goods and gadgets assure us a comfortable life at the material and quantitative level, the more estranged we become from an awareness of our inner reality and our deepest needs. I don't know. For Marcuse, the truth of the matter is, is that not until we're able to liberate ourselves from this, uh, this false consciousness, our consumerist needs and their soothing effects, are we going to be able to see the possibilities for a genuinely happier and freer life. Anyway, okay, so what are some other reasons to rebel against the, the forces of mass society? Well, what about the fact that the norms of the masses often impoverishes us aesthetically? That's to say, the worry here is that what popular culture presents us with is, is often just not very deep or interesting. And that in turn makes us more superficial and kind of dull. You know, I think Plato knew this well. In his own way, he knew how important having the right kind of aesthetic around us was. I mean, the most amazing thing about Plato is just how much he emphasizes the, the importance of the beauty of our surroundings and our activities. In other words, it's the character of the environment that matters most. And this is clear in his view on, on education. I mean, for him, education, especially at its earliest, has very little to do with things like, uh, like counting or, or reciting or some such a singular rote activity. But it has to do with, well, 
enveloping the child inside a world of, of beautiful music and literature and art and architecture and religious observances. It has to do with dwelling in a land of health amid all sorts of beautiful shapes and sights and sounds. As Plato says, education should be like, like a health-giving breeze that comes from a, a purer region providing nourishment for the young soul. For him, the idea is that education is, is really the process of getting the soul to take on the likeness of all the beautiful things it's surrounded by. We're educated through, through imitating and growing more like the things around us. Unconsciously, we take on their harmony and their proportions and their sweetness and their goodness. The beauty of our environment makes our soul beautiful. Anyway, I, I got off track there a bit. But I guess my, my basic point here is just that in mass society, often we're we're forced to endure much more ugliness and superficiality than we should. So, from time to time, to rebel against the, the forces of aesthetic homogenization, that might serve us really well. And that means trying to live more, more freely and creatively. As Kierkegaard says, our lives will be, will be much more interesting if we don't always fall in line with society's ethos to be as busy and productive as possible. Okay, well, I want to mention uh, one last quick thing here. And it has to do with uh, rebellion in the context of uh, raising kids. You see, it's often thought that, that being a, a perfectly obedient kid or, or teenager is a sign of good parenting. But is that really true? I'm not sure it is. I think you could say that a totally compliant adolescent is actually a cause for concern. It's not a good thing. You see, I think it's pretty clear that, that a healthy dose of rebellion during our development encourages more, more things. It encourages more adventure. Uh, it forms a greater sense of self later on. And it actually makes us much more functional later as adults. I mean, when we suppress a, a child's natural rebellious tendencies... What we're essentially teaching them is that their value lies in being obedient. Now, this is no genuine sense of self. It's a sense of self based on a system of rewards. Ultimately, what suppressing rebellion really is, is a kind of narcissism on the part of the parent. It's to want the child to, to obey them and to be like them. It's to block the child from becoming themselves, from becoming a unique individual. And growing into a unique individual. Is there any greater gift a parent could give their child than that? <laughs>